One of the most powerful things that uh, I get to experience from time to time happens right down front. As people come up for prayer or come up to share something with me that's uh, been on their heart, something God's been doing in their life. And I have the privilege of hearing some amazing stories all the time. A young woman came up to me about a year ago now, and she asked a very important question. And I, I could tell it was very important by just the look on her face. And she said, can God fix anything and anyone? And she had an ache in her eyes that I'll never forget, and I told her what I'm going to tell you today. The restoration is God's specialty. She needed hope. She was desperate for even a shred of hope that somehow she could be changed. And I looked her in the eye, and uh, she's crying, and then I'm starting to tear up, and I said, sweetheart, here's the truth. God can restore any life, anything. It's his specialty. If you've ever messed up in your life, and you've messed up big time, and you've wondered, can any good come out of this? then today's talk is for you. I shared last uh, Sunday about how I uh, walked away from God, how I uh, wandered far from him, hated him at one point in my life, and how I came to a fork in the road with a friend of mine at a Bob's Big Boy restaurant in Sunland, California. And it was in that moment where this friend spoke the truth to love in me that I realized I needed to make a decision. And I chose. But what I didn't tell you uh, was the road back to restoration that God took me on was a long road. Sometimes, and I love this about God, he intervenes in our life and something just amazing happens, miraculously just like that, and we're set free from something we're changed to something we've struggled with for eons and decades is suddenly just dealt with, it's gone. And I love it when I see that, when I've experienced that, it's awesome. But just as often, maybe more often, I've discovered, I've seen it in my life and the life of others, that restoration is a process. It's a process. And for me, it was a long process. It took really almost two years before I would consider that I was back and completely whole. I was like the prodigal son. I'd wandered far from God, but I chose to repent and to return to the Father. And that first step that I took uh, was the first step on a long journey for me. Happened in the fall of that year that I uh, had that confrontation with my friend and realized that's the fork in the road and needed to choose to come home and choose the Father. But uh, Christmas party that year, I worked for the banking and banking industry at that time. And at the Christmas party for the branch that I worked at, that three months later after this decision point that I came to in my life, I got so drunk that my dear wife had to drive us home from this party. And uh, I didn't remember hardly anything. What I did remember was that I'd flirted with just about every woman at that party that night and uh, embarrassed myself, embarrassed her. She was not happy with me. But that was just months after I made this decision to come back to the Lord. And my point in telling that story is that sometimes we stumble along. Does anybody relate to the stumbling part at all? Sometimes we make good decisions, we choose, and we still kind of just wander through it. And I thought for a long time that I knew that God had forgiven me. I had no doubt in my mind. I just knew it, that I was forgiven for my sin, for my past, for all the mistakes that I'd made. I knew that. But I was also just as convinced that God would never really use me for anything that mattered. That he wouldn't trust me. That I had blown it, failed too miserably, gone too far off the, 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 the trail. And that though I was forgiven and I was going to make it to heaven, I was convinced that there's no way God was ever going to really trust me with anything of importance again in his kingdom. Now, by the way, before I go any further, let me just tell you, that was a false belief. That was born out of my lack of understanding about the power of God to restore and renew any life fully surrendered to him. And if you're there and you've been there, or if you ever get there, let me just tell you now, what that basically says is, God, my past, my sin is bigger than you. And that is a false belief. That is nowhere close to being true. No matter what you've done, 
no matter what I've done, no matter where we've ended up, no matter how bad we've blown it, how badly we've blown it, nothing you could ever do is bigger than the love and grace of God in your life. Can I get an amen? It is. It's never bigger. Our, our God's never uh, going to be overwhelmed by our sin. One day I was sitting at a place called Church on the Way in Van Nuys, California, and the pastor there was a pastor in, in a, uh, that still has influence in my life. His name was Jack Hayford. And Jack taught from the very same passage that I'm going to teach from today. We'll be in John chapter 21. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. But I remember sitting there listening to Pastor Jack, and this point's probably six, seven months into my return, my healing, my restoration. And Pastor Jack taught this message, and I will never forget it because it was like he was speaking to me, and I was the only guy in the room that he was talking to. Now, of course, none of you have ever felt that way. You've never thought I was talking about you. But I did. I, I really felt like God was just reading my mail and that he was speaking to me from Pastor Jack that day. And what happens? It changed my perspective in my life forever. I love this passage because it's all about restoration. It's all about, it's a post-resurrection experience with a guy named Peter who had failed the Lord miserably. And this is the story found in John 21. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It's also known as the Sea of Galilee. And the afterward here is after uh, the resurrection. And this is, in fact, the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples. And what you need to know, what I want you to understand here is that these guys, the disciples of Jesus, the 11 that were close to him, Judas, of course, had committed suicide, but the 11 guys that had walked with him for three, three and a half years, they're still processing, trying to figure out what this means. Okay, Jesus is no longer in the tomb. He's alive. We've seen him. Thomas says, I've touched the, the, the nail scars in his hand. I know. I don't doubt anymore. I know this guy's alive. But they're thinking, what does this mean? What's this gonna, is this now the time that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom? Is he going to now uh, take his rightful place as ruler and kick out the Romans? So they're processing, wondering about the implications, and they're still trying to figure out just what all this meant. Let's pick it up. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, which means the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, also known as the Sons of Thunder, and two other disciples were together. Now, if my math is correct, uh, there's seven guys referred to right here. And what's more important than the seven guys, who they are, is what they are about to do. Verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Let me give you something here you need to know. When Peter said, I'm going fishing, Peter was not saying, I'm going to go do some recreational you know, fishing right now. I'm a little bored, so I'm going to go drop a few lines in the water and, and see if I can catch anything. That's not what Peter was saying here. Everything that's implied in this, even the language in the original language of the Bible, New Testament, the Greek, everything that's implied here is that Peter's saying, I'm going back to what I once did. I'm returning to what I used to do. He's not talking about a recreational activity. He's essentially saying, I don't have anything else to do, so I'm returning to my former way of life. Now, I, let me remind you, uh, how many of you saw the, 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 the Bible on the History Channel? Uh, you saw uh, some things that I'm going to refer to here. But Peter denied knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And he knew it. He knew that he denied even knowing Jesus. In Jesus' worst time, in his worst hour, when he needed his friends, his friends betrayed him. And so in Peter's mind, he is anything but the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church, which Jesus had told him years before that. As far as he was concerned, that destiny was toast, and it was not going to happen, not now, not ever. And so Peter says, I'm going back fishing. And isn't that the way we feel when we blow it? All we want to do is kind of go back. We focus on the past, 
We focus on how badly we messed up. And so we, we tend to drift back to our comfort zones when that happens, especially after a major failure. And why? Well, because human nature wants to go back to a moment where we had maybe a little bit of success, where something good, sort of good, at least happened in our life. Maybe it's out of insecurity. Maybe we drift back to what was because we don't know what else to do. I think in part Peter's insecure, in part he's just gone, what else am I going to do? But all too often, and maybe you've noticed this in your life, and I noticed, I've noticed it in mine, that we tend to run for cover to the old and the familiar. We blow it, we make a mistake, we fail, and rather than just owning that and moving forward, we run back. And so here's the first thing I want you to see today. It's number one if you're following along in the outline. The road back to restoration is not the road back to your past. The road back to your restoration is never the road back to your past. God has no interest in taking us back to what was. None at all. He simply wants us to, to start where we're at. He takes us right where we're at, and then he moves us forward. And why is that a big deal? Because going back is usually an empty pursuit. Going back doesn't help anybody. And it also denies the power of God's grace and mercy in our lives. Going back again says, I can't do anything from this point on. All I can do is maybe go back to what I had. And even though going back is often our first inclination, back to once, what once was or what we once knew, I'm here to tell you that is not God's plan. That's never his plan for us. If you read the Bible, and I encourage you to read the Bible every day, you know, some of you need to dust it off and pull it out and actually, you know, read the Bible. It's a good thing to read. But if you read it, you'll find, especially in the Old Testament, some very depressing stories. You'll find the Israelites blowing it again and again and again. Now, these were the people of God. God chose them to make them special, not to just treat them in a special way, but to, to demonstrate through them the goodness and the love of God. So everyone, including the Gentiles, all the world, would be drawn to God because they would see in the Jewish nation, in the Israelites, the goodness of God. But these guys blew it all the time. The book of Judges, one of the most depressing books in the Bible. These guys failed again. The Israelites failed again. And again, they kept drifting back to idol worship and to horrible things. And they go through a generation in misery. And then they cry out to God and God would send a deliverer. And then they get set free for a while. And then they'd end up right back in the same place. The Israelites failed time and time and time again. Why do I point that out? Well, because they were called God's people. But here's why I want you to see something. What I want you to see in Isaiah 43, 18. God, through the prophet Isaiah, said this to the Israelites. He said, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. To a people who blew it all the time, who messed up all the time, God himself said through his prophet, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. God doesn't want you to go back to what was. Peter wanted to go back, but God had a different plan. Let's pick it up. Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And I, seven guys, one boat, no fish. How do you think they felt? Not very happy. If you're a fisherman, you've gone out and you fished. Uh, my brother and I used to go out on the pier off of San Pedro and fish all night. And when we came back with nothing, that was not a good night. That was not fun. And there's this landlubber on the shore. They don't know it's Jesus yet. Hey, guys, have you caught any fish? And they've been out all night long. And I think the no is a no exclamation point. No, leave us alone. But I, I love here. I love what Jesus does. And it's easy to miss. But Jesus says, friends. He calls them really an affectionate term. He uses a term that would have been very, very affectionate. 
He says, friends. Now, every one of these guys had abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, John the disciple ended up at the foot of the cross, and he stayed closer to Jesus than the rest. But all of them, that night in the garden when Judas showed up and Jesus was arrested, they all booked. They all took off. They all abandoned him. In fact, at some level, every one of them could rightfully be called traitor. But what does Jesus call them? Guys, don't miss this. They deserve to be called traitors, scumbags, dirt bags, ugly failures. They, they deserve all sorts of horrible things. But Jesus did what? He called them friends. And here's the second point I want you to see. Number two, even when you failed as his friend, Jesus never gives up on you. I can barely get through this point without breaking down in tears. I have to breathe deep and stop thinking about how many times God has just been so kind to me. Even when you have failed, and I, I don't think there's a person in this room, I know there's not, or watching online or listening on the radio that hasn't failed. We've all failed. Even when we fail, what blows me away is that Jesus never gives up on us. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. The faithfulness of God is referred to time and time again in the scriptures. God is faithful. The Lord is faithful. I mean, look up those phrases. You'll find it over and over in the scriptures. The apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The one who calls you, he's referring to God. The one who calls you, and, and Paul says, is faithful. It's not he might be faithful if he's in a good mood that day. He is faithful. And then it says, Paul said, and he will do it. The it here, I don't have time to go to this, but the it here refers to get, he will get you where you need to be. He will sanctify you. He will bring you to everything he has destined you to, to be. He will get you to the place that you need to be as a man or woman of God. The promise is God is faithful, and he's not ever going to give up on you. And I love here that Jesus calls us his friend, and he calls you his friend even when you failed. And again, why is this so important for us to understand? I mean, we might go, well, that's really nice. Ah, thank you, God. Hey, friends, good job. Wait, way to go, God. I like being called your friend. But why is this so important for us to understand? Well, because that reality, when you get it, it will draw you to him when you fail rather than cause you to run from him in fear. When you understand the reality, that, uh, the way God sees you, that he loves you no matter what, and that he is never going to let you down, never going to turn his back on you. What that will do is that when you fail, unless I said when, not if, when you fail, that will draw you to him rather than drive us from him in fear. If God says I'm his friend, if God loves me, if he's never going to fail me, never going to turn his back on me, why wouldn't we run? Why wouldn't I run to him? Again, the process of my restoration took the better part of two years. I'm a very slow learner, and I will admit that to you. But what kept me coming back time and time again, what kept me moving forward was that I knew that God believed in me more than I believed in myself. Do you understand what I'm saying? That he believes in you more than you believe in yourself. God never once threw my past in my face. Not one time. In fact, for the record, neither did my wife. Not one time did God ever throw my past in my face. And the fact that he called me friend, you know what it did? It motivated me. The fact that I knew what I meant to him, it motivated me to want to be more like him. Let's move on. Verse 6. These guys are in the boat. Haven't caught anything. Nope, we haven't caught anything. Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. 
And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So it's John here saying, it's Jesus. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. Gotta love Peter. John says, it's Jesus. <laughs> He's in the water. He is swimming 100 yards, I think, as fast as he can on his way to Jesus. He's not waiting for the boat and hauling the fish in. He says, I'm going to go. And Peter must have had a, a somewhat of an experience of deja vu here. I want to encourage you on your own this week. Go back to Luke chapter 5. This, we're in Luke 21 now. Go back to Luke 5, and you'll read an experience early on. In fact, very beginning of Jesus' call to Peter as his disciple. Jesus is teaching from some boats. One of them belongs to Peter. They get done teaching. Jesus says, let's go out and go fishing. They said, Lord, we've done it all. We fished all night long. We didn't catch a thing. Come on, let's go. They go out. They catch two boatfuls of fish. And Peter falls on his knees before Jesus and says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And you've got to wonder if Peter's not experiencing deja vu all over again. Wait a minute. A few years ago, this is exactly what happened when, I, when Jesus called me to be his disciple. And at the time, I felt like dirt. I was a sinful man. No way. And Jesus said, it's okay. Come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And the same thing's happening here. The first time, Peter was so astonished. This time, he was as well. And what I want you to see here is something amazing about the character of God. And it's number three in your outline. God delights in showing us his unmerited favor. God delights he gets excited about showing you and me his grace, his unmerited favor. Not only does God not rub our sin in our faces, and I'm, for one, really glad about that, but in his mercy and grace, he blesses us beyond belief, way more than we deserve. We don't deserve his favor. We could never earn his kindness, but he gives it to us nonetheless. He knows everything about you. Every thought, every word, every action. He knows the things you've forgotten. <laughs> he, knows, he knows more about you than your spouse, more about you than your parents, more about you than your best friend. He knows everything. And yet God says, I want to bless you with my favor. From time to time, people will say to me, how can you believe in the goodness of God with all the badness in the world? And my response is always the same. First, I say, well, we can't blame God for the evil, for the badness. That's on us. We chose Mankind chose a path of sin. That's not his fault. But I also like to tell him, I believe in the goodness of God because I've seen it a thousand times. I've experienced it. I know how many times. I have seen, I have tasted the goodness of God. I have seen the goodness of the Lord time and time and time again. And so I believe that God is good because he's blessed me despite my idiocy. And I see, I know this. And here's something you might want to just kind of become aware of. That God expects more failure from you than you do. So we go, what? Yeah. We think sometimes when we're doing okay in those, you know, one day out of 365, we think we're doing pretty good and we're going to be all right and we've got this nailed and, man, we know how to get, get life together and, and to keep, you know, everything going the way it should go until we, you know, crash and burn again. But the reality is God knows us. Psalm 91, God knows that we are but dust. He knows what we're made out of. He knows our human nature. And, and truth is, I don't say this to be negative at all. But God expects more failure from us than some of us do. But here's a greater re reality, a greater truth. He's never stingy with his favor and always kind even when we don't deserve it. Always. 
Jesus said this in Luke 6, 35, love your enemies and do good to them. Now that was a radical, earth-shattering statement when he made it to the people that were listening. They were like, whoa, time out. That's not what I was, grew up believing. That's not what I think. And Jesus said, no, love your enemies and do good to them. But then he explained the reason for that. He said, because God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. God is kind, because God is kind. And notice here, not kind to those who deserve it, not kind to those who keep, you know, everything together, not kind to those who always do the right thing. It says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Anybody here have been ungrateful and wicked once or twice in your life? Okay, some of you have not paying attention, because that's, that's all of us. And yet, what I love here is it says, God is kind, his goodness, his favor is on us nonetheless. God blesses us. Let's keep reading verse 12. When the disciples landed the boat, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dare ask, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus took the bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. So see the picture. They're on the, on the beach. Jesus got a fire going. He's already got some fish cooking. Where he got them from, who knows? Maybe they jumped into his arms. I, you know, he's a miracle. I don't know. I can imagine Jesus being a pretty good fisherman. But he's got the fire going, some fish. He's got some bread. He says, come on, guys, let's have breakfast together. In verse 15, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, I want you to see this interaction. I don't know, maybe they're sitting on a rock or a stump or on the beach. I don't know. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, I think that's a very penetrating question. And the more than these, I believe he's referring to the other guys. Remember, in his boldness, Peter had declared, even if everybody else turns their back and betrays you, I never will. I think Jesus, when he says these, he's pointing to the other six guys. Some think he might be pointing to the fishing nets and the boats. You love me more than your past, more than what you've done. Either way, can you imagine how Peter must have felt at that moment? How he must have felt when Jesus turns his attention to him and says, Pete, do you love me more than these? And I don't know why, but I imagine Peter not even looking at Jesus. He's got a stick in his hand, and he's poking the fire. That's what guys do. We're all pyros at heart. We love to play with fire. And, and Peter's not even looking at Jesus. He, doesn't, he can't even make eye contact. And yet he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my lambs. For the record, I don't think Jesus was scolding Peter at all. I don't think the tone in his voice was, Peter, do you really love me? I don't think so, not at all. I think he was restoring Peter. I'm convinced there was a corrective encounter here, and that's why we're going to see in a moment it happens three times. But I believe with all my heart that it was destined and designed to put Peter back on track. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? It's the second time. And he answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Verse 17, the third time. See a pattern here? Three times Peter denies the Lord. Three times Jesus asks him. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my flock. And I, know, I want you to notice here the exchange. Jesus not only asked the question of love, which is the question he asked of all of us, by the way. At some point in your life, uh, if you're not a Christ follower yet, this will be the, the encounter that you will have that will radically change everything. Jesus will ask you, he'll say to you, in your heart, you'll hear it, do you love me? Will you, will you love me? Do you know how much I love you? 
But not only does he have this encounter, this love exchange, where he's asking and saying, yes, I do, but he's being commissioned back. He's being, again, assigned to his destiny, to fulfill his purpose. God, through Jesus, says, feed and care for God's flock then. So here's the final takeaway, number four in your outline. And this is a big one. No matter what is in your past, God still has a plan for you. No matter what is in your past. And guys, listen, no matter what. That young woman who I talked to down here, her story was quite tragic. She had been a drug abuser. She had been actually a prostitute. And when she asked me, can God heal and fix anybody and anything, she, she came from a very dark and sordid past. But the truth is, it doesn't matter what we've done. No matter what our past is, God still has a plan for us. No matter what your past mistakes, what your failures have been, God always, always has a purpose for you. I've said this many times before. If you've been around here, you've heard it. I will say it many times again until Jesus comes or I go to be with him. And it's a phrase I love. The boundaries of your past don't have to be the horizons of your future. The boundaries of your past, that box that you put yourself in because of all the failure, all the mistakes you've made, those boundaries do not have to be the horizons of your future. So if you've heard anything that I've heard today, please hear this. God can and will redeem, restore, and renew any life surrendered to him. I want to finish today with a video. Let's watch this together. Have you ever noticed how everything degrades? Given enough time, everything loses its luster and newness. Whether with age or misuse, things break down and need repair. Eventually, everything needs restoring. The same is true for us. We need restoration. Not just from getting old or breaking down in our bodies but restoration for our soul as well. Life takes its toll and we often make wrong choices that wound us and scar us. Life can beat us down even to the point of making us feel useless, leaving us questioning our value. But no matter what we have been through, we are still valuable to our Maker. God is in the business of restoration. He alone can pick us up, clean us off, and make us new. In the hands of the master craftsman, that which is broken and abandoned can be restored and put back to good use. With patient and loving care, God our Father heals our wounds, smooths over our rough edges, and replaces the broken parts of our lives. But it is costly. Any restoration will take time, energy, and resources. For God, it cost Jesus on the cross. But to Him, we're worth it. God is calling to all of us, saying, Come, know that you are useful. Trust my gentle care. Commit yourself to the hand of your God. Come be restored. Listen to me this morning. God is in the business of restoration. It's what he does best. Would you bow your heads just, heads just for a moment? Let me pray for you. Maybe you're here today and you've thought, 
and I've messed up. I've blown it way too many times. I'm too far gone. Or I, I, I believe that maybe God can forgive me, but I don't think he could ever use me. And I want you to know today that just like I believe that once upon a time, it's a false belief. It's not true. God is a master craftsman. He can take any life, surrender to him. And the issue for you and me is, will we surrender our lives to him? Will we just say, okay, God, I give up. I can't do this on my own. And I'm broken. I'm, I'm messed up. I've got all sorts of things that need to be changed. God, I surrender my life to you. If you're here today, you want to begin your life as a Christ follower, or maybe come home, maybe you're the prodigal son or daughter, I'm going to pray this very simple prayer right now. And what I'm going to ask you to do is just make my prayer your prayer right now. Make these words your words and ask God to do this in your life. Father, forgive me. I have failed. I have made a mess of things. I've got my own way, and I've got the bruises and the tears and the devastation of my life to show for it. Sometimes I, I think I look okay on the outside, but Lord, I know my inside, so do you. I know the sin that I wrestle with in my heart, the temptations that I struggle with, the, 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 the mental things that I go to all the time that are just wretched and dark and, and horrible. And yet, God, right now, I believe that you love me. And I believe that you are a God who heals. And right now, I believe in you, Jesus, that you paid the price for my sin. And so I come to you, the master craftsman, and I say, restore my life. Forgive me. Heal me. Make me whole. Now, if that's your heart, your prayer, just in your own way, say, yep, God, that's me. That's what I need. Lord, for those making that decision right here in this room or watching online or listening on the radio, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show them the kindness, the goodness, the grace of God like they've never seen it before. And let them feel and experience and see and know the power of God to restore like they never thought possible. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish with one last song. Yeah, we're going to give. Our ushers are going to take the offer right now. Give to support what God's doing here. But let's worship as we do. And I'll come back and wrap it up. I love the first part of that song which says our God trans took the water and changed it into wine. That's the very first miracle that Jesus did. And the reason I love that is because if he can take water and turn it into wine, he can take anybody and anything and transform us into something awesome. If you're here today and you began your life as a Christ follower, please let somebody know. If they want to walk with you, I want to walk with you, let me know. On the tables, by the doors, there's a packet for new believers. It's got a Bible, some material. Get you started your walk with Jesus. Please pick one of those up. If you need prayer, pray to me to be down front. Sometimes the journey towards wholeness and restoration requires help, other people. So please know our prayer team's down here to support you. And there's communion on both sides of the room if you'd like to take that today and celebrate what Jesus did for you. Go this week and walk in the restoration that's yours in Jesus as his friends. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming today.